Okay. <coughs> now, last week, we were in Proverbs chapter 27, uh, which we have been there for the last year and a half. But anyway, we looked at verses 11 and 12. And again, some great material uh, focusing on making the heart of your father glad. Uh, we took some time with these verses, and we, uh, we looked, first of all, how that it's dealing historically with the nation of Israel, you know, and God uh, as their father, and uh, how they disappointed him, and God had a plan for them. God made it very clear to Abraham what he wanted to accomplish with the nation of Israel, and of course, gave them everything to be able to do that, and of course, they did not do that. Then we saw the second application of it is to uh, me and you is to Christ. And, uh, and here again, God has a plan for each of us. And the gladness in God's heart only comes when you and I submit ourselves to the Word of God and then fulfill all that God has for us. And, and many times God's people, you know, they don't do that. Then we sought another application, uh, us, to our earthly father and, and mother and how that, uh, you know, we as kids, when we were growing up and your own kids today, how that they can, you know, make or break, uh, you know, your heart based on uh, what, you, what they do with the Word of God and, 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 the, and the things that they do in life. You know, and we basically talked about following the course of wisdom and understanding. And that's really what, in all three of these cases, what makes the Father's heart glad. You know, if I've learned anything uh, in my time on earth, you know, and I've tried to learn the lessons of life by my own mistakes and, you know, certainly by the mistakes of others and listed out in the Word of God. But if I've learned anything in my life, if somebody would say, what is the number one thing in everything that you've experienced in life and everything that you've dealt with in your own personal life and dealing with all kinds of people, what is the number one thing that you have learned? It would be easy for me to say without any thinking of it, the number one thing that I've learned is that life is about the choices we make. It's an, it's an incredible, simple contact. We like to make life very complex many times. Many times when we get into circumstances or situations, we think by making it more complex, it gets us out of the accountability of it. But life is not complex. Life is very simple. And life boils down to that your life and my life is simply about the choices that we make. And in most cases, when we make a bad choice, we don't, we don't see at the time, uh, I don't think most of us do anyhow, uh, we, we don't see the long-range consequences of it. You know, last week in verse 12, it talked about the prudent man, that how he'll see evil coming long before it gets to him and how in how in it how it, it before it impacts him he sees it and he stays away from it and the reason for that is within the book of proverbs is that he has understanding and uh, the great attribute of getting the bible in your life will be understanding understanding is wisdom applied the right way uh, and our uh, letting the Word of God change us in our lives to be everything that God wants us to be. Uh, the goal of every one of us that should every day we should see things on a different level. We should understand things on a little different level as God changes us. And it leads us to making good choices uh, in life. And I want to tell you, uh, making good choices just doesn't happen. You don't get saved and then just go to church someplace and then wake up 12 years later and while you slept last night, the angels of heaven rolled the roof back on your bedroom and a big dump truck of understanding dumped it into your brain. It's a process. 
It's a process of understanding from the Word of God and getting the, and understanding the consequences of the choices that we make. And I totally get it. In most cases, you know, one bad choice will not be the tragedy of tragedy. Now, there are some that will be, but in most cases, that's not true. And let's face it, we all make dumb moves and make mistakes. But the problem is the continuation of making bad choices that will destroy you. Being unteachable and never learning by your own mistakes, but even the mistakes of others that you see. And I'm not saying that you're judgmental of them. I'm just saying that you see the cause and effect of things and you allow it to correct your course in life. Building a life of wrong and bad choices will lead to a life that is a heavy burden and, and get out of control. We talk about strongholds and how somebody can get a stronghold in their life. And there certainly are some strongholds in life that really, really just take people off the chart as far as God being able to use them. And it all comes back and it all will come back to the bad choices that we've made. You know, we'll see them in our own personal life. I've known people that, you know, that God wanted to use and probably had some great potential to be used, but because of the choices that they continued to make through life, it just canceled it out. You know, you're going to find that marriages fall apart because of the fact that, uh, you know, the bad choices that people make. I mean, they get into relationships that they never should get into. There's, there's very clear principles in the Bible before you marry somebody and thinking in your mind you're, you, you're above that and you can go around that or you can pretend that it's actually happening when it's not. Bad choices. You know, you find it in, in, in your own kids. You know, many parents, they, like we talked about this last week, you know, many parents, they, they make the tragic mistake with their kids of the fact that they, 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 they make a lot of bad choices. And those kids become subservient to those choices that their parents allow, and, and the rest is, is just history. You know, we all know and understand, and I was looking at the thing up here, and they got uh, all the different things that they're going to overcome. I guess that's... Supposed to be Rocky or somebody. I don't know. He's got the shorts on it. Rocky did. It says, you can't see this, but it says, this is what they're going to talk about. Peer pressure, anxiety, negativity, bullying, bad attitude, school shootings, depression, social media. And then the last one here is suicide. Suicide is, is a terrible sin. There's a lot of confusion on it today uh, by people. I've met a lot of people who think that if you commit suicide, that that's the one sin that will send you to hell no matter what your relationship is with God. And the reasoning behind it is because they think that it's a sin that you commit that you can't ask God's forgiveness for because you're obviously dead. And, of course, the answer to that is just shoot yourself really bad and ask God to forgive you and then die 15 minutes later and you're good. But anyway, <laughs> if you want to get around it, it's so stupid. Let me tell you, once you're saved, you're saved. And, but people don't know their Bible today. And the key to understanding it will, again, be the Bible. Most people don't even realize. You know in the Bible there are seven suicides? There's seven suicides listed for you in the Word of God. And if you want to know what leads to suicide, just get into those seven in the Bible and it'll, it'll lay it out for you. Make a long story short, and that's not my message today, you will find that there's two main components of a person that commits suicide. The first one is selfishness. All they're seeing is their own self and their own personal problems. They're not seeing the big picture of anything. 
The second one will be bad choices. Somebody said one time, suicide is a terrible choice. Yeah, it is. But in reality, suicide is just another choice in a long life of bad choices. And unfortunately, it's the last choice somebody's going to make. But it just didn't wake up on Tuesday and decide, I'm going to take my life today. You have a life of bad choices that puts you in a scenario and in a circumstance that you thought there was no way out. And the truth of the matter is, whether you're saved or whether you're lost, there's always a way out. If you're unsaved this morning, your way out is the cross of Jesus Christ. I don't care where you're at, what you're going through. You may have a pistol in your hand. Listen to me on this. Put it down. Open up your Bible to Romans chapter 10 and get saved. It's always been inconceivable to me how a child of God could want to commit suicide. But I get it. Being in the ministry as many years as I have now, I see it. Some of God's people get so far out of touch with God, so far out of reality, that even though they're saved, they're living a lifestyle like an unsaved person. And it isn't the fact that one's saved or one's not saved that brings them to the point of suicide. It's the bad choices in each case. Because bad choices is what life's all about. And it's a, it's a terrible thing. And, uh, you know, you, you learn very quickly, or you better learn very quickly, that life is choices. And, you know, you take, when you build, uh, build into your own life or the life of your child, when you build in self-discipline, when you build in accountability, when you build in truthfulness, you know, then you, you have the ability to make good choices, and life will uh, be about those choices that you make. I don't know how many times over the years somebody, you know, their son or their daughter has made some bad choices in life and got married to some idiot or got this or that and just a bad situation all the way around. And, you know, obviously the parents have, have made the mistake of teaching them discipline or accountability and truthfulness. And a lady said to me one time, she says, well, it's the guy that she married that made her life the way that she is. And I immediately ask her, who taught her that value system? I mean, okay, she got a, a goofy guy for a husband, but where, who taught her the value system or did not teach her the value system of how to pick somebody? Because it all comes back to choices. You know, the last part of the verse says, and it will speak for itself, but the simple pass down and are punished. And we see it all the time, the unbreakable, the unhappy, the unfulfilled, the unfruitful life of a man or a woman without the wisdom of God and without the word of God. And going through life, making those bad choices over and over and over and over. And they, they compound, they compile, and they get to the point where it, one, if one bad choice weighs 100 pounds, by the time you live 10 or 15, 20 years uh, with bad choices, you're carrying around about 9 or 10 tons of it. And that's what breaks you. And that was last week we talked about that. And today we're going we're gonna to move right on. And this is the great verse. And I think a verse that strikes at uh, the great unknown teaching of, of the doctrine today. And I can understand why this verse was put right in the middle of everything that we're looking at. Because what we have been looking at at this point is, you know, a relationship with God through wisdom, making good choices, making the heart of your father glad and all those great things. And now we come to this verse that is stuck right in the middle of all this. And this doctrine today, I've got to confess to you, it's so foreign to God's people that it's unbelievable. And yet, just 100, 120 years ago, it was one of the mainstays of Bible preaching and Bible teaching. 
Now, uh, let me just say this to you today. I, I you know, and uh, yeah, you're going to get a. We've our last couple of weeks, we've had some really good inspirational stuff. I think it's been good stuff to help you uh, in your walk with God. And I'm not saying today won't either, but I need to preface what I'm going to say by saying this: We're going to get into the little Bible today. It's been nice, inspirational stuff, and that's been great. But uh, we're going to go a little deeper today. You know, the last couple of weeks, we talked about how that when you love the honeycomb, the Word of God, even the bitter things are sweet. You're going to see if that's true today. And what we're about to look at has been lost to the Laodicean church age. And obviously, <coughs> those of you that know your Bible, that <coughs> that's the church age that we're, we're in, the last one before Christ comes. You know, and yet, uh, uh, you know, it says in Proverbs twenty-seven thirteen. it says, here's the verse, take his garments that is surety for a stranger and take a pledge of him for a strange woman. Marcus Aridicus, where are you at? My famous Roman emperor. He's in the kids? I'm just going to have him pray. He'll have his dad stand up and pray then. Go ahead. Butch Walker played for the Cleveland Cavaliers back in what year? 1905. <laughs> Tell you confess to me where the hoodie went. You have nothing else to say. Go ahead, Butch. Now, if you're listening on YouTube this morning, uh, I just want to say this. After you hear this message today, you need to examine where you're at, your church, and your pastor. Because I'm going to tell you, if, if you're in a church that you, in at least a year, hasn't had one message on this, you need to find another church. Now, maybe you won't, because, you know, I, I found this is so true, especially with men. You know, men don't ever want to go to the doctor. You know that? I, I know. I, I and I, now I'm the opposite. I'll go to the doctor for everything. You know, I, I just, I just, I just do. If I, you know, I, I'm not one of these guys. I may buy a die of a lot of things, but I'm not going to die of things that all the other guys die of. But you know why? <laughs> you know why guys don't want to go, go to the doctor? I, I've talked to a lot of them. I've tried to get some of you to go to my doctor. I got the greatest doctor on the planet, Dr. Boye. He's a great guy. And, uh, you know, I try to get all you guys to go because you guys are important to me. I don't want you to die of something. And some of you guys have never been to the doctor. And you won't go. And you know why you won't go? Because you don't want to find out if something's wrong with you. How did God tell me that one time? I said, what you? Because I don't want to know. I said, you may have prostate cancer. You may have this. You may have that. I don't want to know. Hey, you know what? There's a lot of Christians that go to churches that don't preach the Word of God that feel the same way about Amen. the truth of the Bible. Amen. So you know why you stay in those churches? Because you don't want to know. Amen. You don't want to know the truth. You're like the ostrich that wants to stick your head in the sand and pretend it isn't there. Well, I got news for you. It's there. Amen. And the message I'm going to preach to you today, I'm sorry, we're going to get into a little Bible today. I'll try to take it easy on you, but you know what? I probably won't. 
Now that verse says, take his garment that is surety for a stranger. I want you to look at this verse. And take a pledge of him for a strange woman. Now that's not talking about your first wife, guys. So let's put that to the side here and we're going to look at this thing. Now let's, let's get, your, get some notes in your Bible this morning that will help you here. Now first of all, doctrinally. This will clearly be a tribulation passage or a verse. And, uh, you know, from the verse, just reading it, from our past times in Proverbs, you should be paying attention now, you know, we, it automatically lays out some things for you. First of all, surety for a stranger. This will be making an alliance or a deal with somebody that you're not acquainted with that you don't really know. And then, obviously, you'll wind up getting burnt. Uh, this, was the, this was covered in Proverbs in great detail in chapter 20, verse 16, and again in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 1, and again in chapter 11, verse 15. Now, in a doctrinal mindset, this will be the Jew in the tribulation period who is a fool. He's not got any of God's wisdom. We, we know that the book of Proverbs is about a wise man and a foolish man, and doctrinally, it is the nation of Israel. And he makes an alliance with the Antichrist during the tribulation period because he believes what he said. Now, the great example in the Old Testament would be Ahab and Jezebel. And he gets deceived, as the Bible lays out, and he gets destroyed. Now, here we go. Now, we're going we're gonna to look at this, and I want, you to, I want you to focus on the key word here. And I've told you this before. The key, the key to the Bible is key words in the Bible. You'll find one word, and that whenever you find it, you know, you, wanna, you always want to pay attention to it. I'm not gonna, there are some words that when you find it, 100% of the time it's going to mean one thing. There are other words that can be used in a different way, but the majority of the time you want to pay attention because it's focusing you towards something. Now, in verse 13, we want to look at the word garment, and we want to follow that through here. Uh, for a little bit, and then we'll shift gears. And uh, take a deep breath now, because we're going to go down deep where the whales live, and uh, we're going to try to get some things done. Now, the standard teaching is, the standard teaching is that everybody in the Old Testament looked forward to the cross, and we in the New Testament look back to the cross. And that is the standard teaching taught across, universally across Christianity today by guys who know nothing about the Word of God. And one of the things that you get into when you get into the dispensations in the Bible, which we're going through in our Bible Institute right now, uh, you're going to find that God does deals with men differently down through the periods of time in the Bible. And one of the key things that I want you to leave today and understand about this verse is understanding salvation in the Old Testament and in the tribulation and how it's different from the church age. And the key word is going to be garments. There's guys that will teach you that in the Old Testament that they're saved just like you and I. Now, I understand grace and faith are without a doubt through the whole scope of the Bible. I get that. But you're going to take somebody who's going to tell you that in the Old Testament they're saved just like you and they were looking forward to the cross. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you about four or five things you've got a problem with. First of all, in the Old Testament, there is no Holy Spirit of God. He didn't come to Acts chapter 1 and 2. Second of all, there is no new birth, which was initiated when the Holy Spirit of God came. There's no church because they're first called Christians at Antioch, and that's the first church mentioned in your Bible. There's no Christians because Acts chapter 11 tells you they didn't start till Acts chapter 11. And so 
God revealing himself to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament and in the tribulation period, you're clearly told that it is dealing with them on the basis as a nation. And when you go to Romans chapter 11, you'll find clearly laid out the difference between Israel's salvation as a nation and your salvation as an individual. And the key word will be garments. Uh, Write down in your notes there, Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10. In Isaiah 61, verse 10, he's talking to the nation of Israel. And you know what he says to the nation of Israel? He says to the nation of Israel that God has given them, listen now, garments of salvation. You know, you never find that term given to the church. You got a robe of righteousness and you got fine linen, which is the righteousness of the saints. But you don't find the word garment ever connected to the church. You know why? Because it's exclusively used to Israel's salvation in the Old Testament and again in the tribulation period. And Isaiah 61.10 clearly says to Israel that God gave them garments of salvation. Now, if that wasn't enough, turn over to Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. Now, I want you to see this. We're going to have a little Bible study first, then we're going to get into a little preaching, then we're all going to feel really bad. Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. Now, Revelation chapter 1 is the introduction to the book of Revelation. And John is writing to you and me in the church. And I don't have time this morning to lay out how the book of Revelation breaks down. If you've been around here long enough or you stick around long enough, you'll get it. It's on the website. But the bottom line is simply this. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, the intro into the book of Revelation, John tells us that in this dispensation, the church age, it says that Christ washed us from our sins in his own blood. And the emphasis I want to put on there is the fact that Christ washed you. Now, there are a group of people around the world today that claim to be Christians that says that you've got you to do something to be saved. And let me tell you something. If you think you've got to do something to be saved, you're going to split hell wide open. There's nothing that you can do to be saved in the church age. And certainly, if your salvation is based on the cross of Christ and his death on Calvary's cross. And uh, it, it kicked off the church age. It started the Holy Spirit of God coming. And it entered into the dispensation of the church age where you and I have to come to the cross and anything you bring for your own good works, for your salvation, you better leave them outside. Because Revelation chapter 1 verse 5 clearly says that you and I, if you're saved this morning, are you saved? No, I don't think you are. Are you saved this morning? Well, if you're saved this morning, you're saved because Christ washed you in his blood. What shall wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. There is a fountain filled with blood. I'm not not really preaching yet. I'm going to get into it in a minute. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty state. And if you're saved this morning, it's because he washed you. I want to make that point. I think I did. Now turn turn over to Revelation chapter 7. Now this is what you call Bible study. This is what you call studying to show thyself approved. And you'll find that when I preach to you all the time, certainly today, I don't have my own opinion about anything. I I just simply go to the Bible. 
And you want me here who say, well, I read Fawcett and Brown over here and he thinks this or so-and-so thinks this. I won't ask you what your opinion is and give you my opinion. Uh, I don't care what your opinion is. I don't even care what my opinion is. When it comes to the Bible and life, let God be true and every man a liar. We just go to the books. And I'm telling you, that's where we're going today. If you got a problem with me, you got a problem with the book, because all I'm giving is the Word of God. All right, we saw in chapter 1, verse 5, in the church age, you and I got washed by Christ. Now look at this. Revelation chapter 7, we're now in the tribulation period. You know the book of Revelation, chapter 1, 2, and 3 is the seven periods of church history. In Revelation chapter 4, doors opened in heaven, a voice like a trumpet says, come up hither. I think in the first three chapters of the book of Revelation, you find the word church mentioned like 21 times. Once you get past chapter 4, you never find the word church again. It's raptured out till you get to the end when he closes the book. So now by the time we get into Revelation chapter 7, we're in the tribulation period. You all follow me on that? Yes. Okay, good, 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 good. Now look at verse 14. Now we're talking about tribulation saints now, not church-age Christians. And he says in Revelation chapter 7, verse 14, These are they which came out of the great tribulation, so there's no mistake, and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. You see the difference? I mean, a blind man can see it. Jeffrey, do you see it? If he was here, he'd see it. <clears throat> I mean, come on. You see, chapter 1, verse 5, in the church age, you and I got washed in his blood. But in 714, they have to wash their own robes. And those are the garments of salvation. Isaiah chapter 61, given to the nation of Israel. And if that weren't enough, look at Revelation. Go back to Revelation 14. We're again in the tribulation period. And if that weren't enough, look at Revelation chapter 14. Now, I told you already. Now, this is Bible study. This is real Bible study. This isn't some tickle your toe, give you a little nice feeling. This is getting into the book, going down deep, and seeing some things in the Word of God that isn't taught very much today. Now look at Revelation chapter 14, pick it up in verse 12. Here's what it says. Here is the patience. Now, you mark that word in your Bible. Because wherever you find the word patience, you want to look at it very carefully because the definitive passage on patience is James chapter 5, verse 7 and 8. And you're going to find that the word patience, when you find it, in most cases, will be a reference to the tribulation period. And in James chapter 5, that's exactly what you've got. A little bit later on, you got Moses and Elijah showing up. You got he's talking about the patience of Job. We know from last week and other times that Job's a type of the tribulation period, the book of Job. He's underground, persecuted by the devil for 42 uh, chapters while the tribulation is 42 months. I gave you all that last week. So we see that this is a great. So when you find the word patience, pay attention. Here is the patience of the saints. Now here it comes. Here are they that, one, keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Now, is there anybody here keeping the commandments of God this morning? Your faith, in, your faith is found in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And if you're saved here this morning, you're saved because you trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ and His death on Calvary's cross. And Colossians chapter 2, for you and for me, says 
that when he died on the cross, he put away and nailed the Old Testament law to the cross, and it means nothing to us now. Oh, but here's somebody in the tribulation period who has the garments of salvation that have to wash their own garments. Now we're told that they have to keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Mark the word Jesus there. Sometime as you grow up in the Bible and you get a little farther down there, you'll start to look at the way that the name Jesus is used in your Bible. Sometimes you'll find it Lord Jesus. Sometimes you'll find it Christ Jesus. Sometimes you'll find it Jesus Christ. And sometimes you'll find it just Jesus. Every time you find that name in whatever form it is, it means something. And here... You need to ask yourself the question, why doesn't it say the Lord Jesus? Why doesn't it say Jesus Christ? Why doesn't it say Christ Jesus? Why in this particular passage in Revelation 14, 12, why does it just say the faith of Jesus? There's a reason for that in your Bible. There's a reason for that. Now, this is called real Bible study. I'm sorry. I wish that we could pretend that those things really don't matter. <laughs> They matter because all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. And every word in that Bible is vitally important. And that's why we don't talk about and we don't suggest and we don't, we don't propagate all the new Bibles. Because you know the first thing they do is they change all the words. And then you can't follow any chain reference of anything. That's what they do. So there's a reason why you got somebody in the tribulation period who has to keep the commandments, the Old Testament, and also the faith of just Jesus. That's one for you to work on for a while. I'm not going to give you the answer to that. Now, getting all of this together. Our verse says, take his garment that is surety for a stranger. In the tribulation, the Jew, the foolish one, will not have the wisdom and understanding of God, and he will go along with the Antichrist. He won't see it as 27.12 last week. He won't see what's coming his way clearly. And the Bible warns him in Revelation chapter 3, verse 4. It talks about somebody in the tribulation period who has, is warned not to defile their garments. There it is again. At Revelation chapter 16, verse 15 says, Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that watcheth. There's another key word you want to mark. Watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Now you'll find these folks in Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 10. In the great parable there of the ten virgins, five were wise and five were foolish. And you find in that story that five uh, have the oil and five don't have any oil, type of the Holy Spirit of God, or they lose the oil. And then when they are told to go and buy and get some oil and, uh, and uh, type of the Holy Spirit of God, and you need to stop and figure out how somebody in the tribulation goes and buys the Holy Spirit. That's a good study for you. Take about 40 years, but you'll get there. When the bridegroom comes, the Lord Jesus Christ at the second coming of Christ, the five wise go with him, the five that are foolish, that did not do what God said, did not have the understanding, who defiled their garments, they lose their garments. 
Now, let me just pause here for a minute and talk about the stupid charismatics, the stupid Baptists, and the stupid neo-evangelical crowd. They'll get into Matthew chapter 25 here, and they'll start reading about the ten virgins, five were fives, and five were foolish. And because they know nothing about the Bible, they'll try to put this into the church age and prove by this passage that there's proof you can lose your salvation. Of course, it's not even the same dispensation. Of course, in the tribulation period, they don't have the Holy Spirit of God. There's no Holy Spirit of God in the tribulation. Then there's no church in the tribulation. There's nothing in the tribulation that would lend them to anything in the dispensation of the church. That's why they're told to keep the commandments and faith in who? Jesus. Why just Jesus? Boy, that's a, that's a jawbreaker for you. Why just Jesus? Why isn't it the Lord Jesus? Why isn't it Jesus Christ? Why isn't it the Lord Jesus Christ? Why is it just Jesus? Work on that one for a while. I won't say any more about that because, uh, you know, that's not where we're at today. And as Gary Potter, who's out of town, says, you can't fix stupid. So we won't worry with that today. Now, you guys in Bible Institute, and that's about 100 of you here, you know that we have started going through the dispensations. And uh, you know that, uh, you know, I've told you before that that is the key to putting your Bible together. You may, well, you may learn a lot of things about the Bible just by coming to church or going to a Bible study or just whatever or reading books on it or just reading it yourself. You may learn a lot of things about the Bible, but if you want to learn the Bible, you've got to learn how to rightly divide the word of truth. Amen. And there's only one way to do that. And if you don't rightly divide it, you're going to wrongly divide it. And when you wrongly divide it, then you come up with all this goofy stuff, and all I'm doing for you today is just taking you to the Bible. I mean, how can anybody argue with Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, and Revelation chapter 7? It's not the same, it tells you. And nowhere anywhere in the Bible is what you and I have as a Christian ever called a garment. But in Isaiah 61, to Israel, they're garments of salvation, and they're told to let no man take their garment. They're told not to defile that garment. And that'll be the doctrinal application to verse 12. And that's not where I really want to go today. I wanted to give you that because many of you are Bible students and you want to get that stuff down. So there you are. And I'll help you through it with it. If there's things you don't get, Thursday night Bible study would be a great opportunity. But now let's look at the practical application. And here's where we're going to find out if even the bitter things are sweet. Now, in the practical application, what we have here is a warning for you and me in the reference of the judgment seat of Christ. In the Bible, when you rightly divide it, you will find that there are seven judgments laid out in the Word of God. When we started our Bible Institute, the first year we took, we took and we talked about defining some things. The second year, we got into what we call God's systematic theology, and that is the seven series found in the Bible. Seven judgments, seven resurrections, seven, all that stuff, seven baptisms, uh, seven periods of church history. And we've learned that in the Bible, there are seven distinct judgments. Now, here's the problem. Three of them, three of those judgments are to you and me in the New Testament church. You can get them on the website. The main one for us will be the judgment seat of Christ. The old guys used to call it the Bema seat, and there's a reason for that. We don't get into it this morning. Knowing your Bible, you're going to know that the last judgment for unsaved men will be the great white throne judgment in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. 
The Bible says, And I saw a great white throne, and from him that sat on whose face the heaven and earth fled away, and it was found no place for them to hide. I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were open, and another book was open, was the book of life. And the dead, could you move that screen a little farther? I'm getting far. I can't read the next part of that. That's the last judgment for an unsaved person. The last judgment for you and for me. Now, here we go. The last judgment for an unsaved man will be the great white throne judgment, Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. The last judgment for God's people, you and me, will be the judgment seat of Christ. And the thing that I want you to see, they're both by fire. I'll just follow that. Now, when you come to the judgment seat of Christ, and I say, hey, churches don't preach on it anymore. I mean, churches do not preach. Preachers don't preach. I don't even know if they believe it anymore. But I want to tell you something. The judgment seat of Christ is the most impacting day of your life after you get saved. It's a day that you're going to stand before God and you're going to give an account with what you did with what God gave you. And I'm telling you right now, if you're going to a church, if you're listening to a guy who's talking about everything else and trying to do all of this and all of that, and he's not concerned about warning you about the greatest judgment in your life, you better check some things out. But maybe you're like those guys who don't want to go to the doctor. But in the Bible, there's two definitive passages on it. And the judgment seat of Christ is the number one doctrine the New Testament Christian should look to. Now let's look at these quickly. And let's examine the first one. The first one will be in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 11 through 17. You see, we got the doctrinal laid out now. We know now that that's dealing with the nation of Israel in the tribulation period. Now we want to see how this verse applies to you and me. Verse 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 11 through 17. It says, Now, for other foundation can no man lay that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abides with the have built thereupon, he will receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by the fire. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. That did not happen to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, nor does it happen to them in the New Testament. You know very clearly in the Old Testament and the tribulation, the temple for the nation of Israel was a literal building. They built it. Solomon built it. And in the tribulation period, it's going to be temple worship again. We know 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 says, What know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost? In the Old Testament, the whole world was to come to a literal temple. In the New Testament, you take your temple to the whole world. See the difference? Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, which temple are ye? Now, I want you to look at some things here, and first of all, look at verse 10, which is right above verse 11, and it says in verse 10 that we are to be a wise master builder. You know, when you want to build a house, you want to, uh, you want to build a house, you'll, 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 you'll look for a builder. 
And in building, uh, and of course, uh, you're going to find when you have go through the ads, you're going to find that some of them are just builders. And then you're going to find some of them are certified master builders. Now, that means those are the guys you want to hire. <laughs> Truth of the matter is, most of them are no different from the other guys. If you don't mind me saying so, and I'll just, not because I'm prejudiced, but if you want a really a wise master builder in building your house... Bubba and Donnie. What Bubba doesn't know, Donnie does. And what Donnie doesn't know, Bubba doesn't care. (laughs) I'm making my point. We had a guy who built our house that we live in now that was supposed to be a certified master builder. And yet, when you, years later, we found out that he didn't do everything he was supposed to do. He put in cheap two-by-fours. I mean, the termites loved it. I mean, he didn't do everything that he was supposed to do. And, uh, you know, I've come to the conclusion that most guys who build houses that want to build themselves as wise master builders are just like a lot of God's people that build themselves as somebody that's a wise master builder. They're not. Now, I'm going to tell you what a wise master builder is. And if you're already there, praise the Lord. And if you don't, aren't there, then I'll help you get there if you want to get there. But you may be like that guy that never goes to the doctor. Now, first of all, he says a wise master builder. The second thing I want you to see is a verse 11. He says, if any man build upon this foundation. Now, the foundation here is the day you got saved. When you got saved, you laid a foundation in your life which based on the death of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross. And when you got saved, you're God's temple. You're God's building. And you're going to build on it from that point on. But the foundation starts with the day that you recognize you're a sinner, turn from your sin, and trust the Lord Jesus Christ as your own personal Savior and lay that foundation in your life. Now, the rest of your life as a Christian, on that foundation, read it. You're to build three things. Now, actually, you can build six, but my advice to you is to build the first three. He says, you build upon that foundation as a wise master builder, gold, silver, and precious stones. Now, let me bring that down for you by going through the Bible. In the Bible, you'll find that gold represents the deity of Christ. So the first thing you build on that foundation is an understanding and a relationship with Christ. The second thing you build on that foundation is silver. In the Bible, Christ was sold for 30 pieces of silver. Silver represents the redemption money back in the Old Testament. So the second thing you build on that foundation, after you know who he is, then you know what he did for you. Gold, silver. And then the third thing is precious stone. Malachi chapter 3 and many other places in the Bible will liken precious stones to people. Here's the simple of it. When you find out who God is, and you find out what he did for you, you can't help but tell somebody else about it when you build that on the foundation. That's a wise master builder. Or wood, hay, and stubble. Wood's a dead tree. Hay's dead grass. Stubble's dead wheat. Dead things for dead Christians. Verse 13 says, your works are going to be made manifest and they're going to be tried by fire. Now, when the fire hits the gold, silver, and precious stones, especially in the gold and the silver, fire only purifies it. But when it hits the dead hay and the dead wheat and the dead grass, burns up. He says in verse 14 that there's going to be a reward for the faithful. He says in verse 15 that the unfaithful are going to suffer loss, but I want you to see this. Yet, 
Verse 15 says they're still saved. Look at verse 16 and 17. Your body is God's temple. And we learn from Proverbs chapter 31, verse 22, looking at the virtuous woman, that it talks about how that she makes her own clothes with her own hands by the thing that she does. And the Bible We'll talk about that in a moment as the robe of righteousness was fine linen, which is the righteousness of the saints. Now, our robe of righteousness is found in Revelation 19, 7, 8. It's a white robe, and I want you to notice that those things are passed out after the judgment seat of Christ, after your salvation. With the nation of Israel, it's dealing with their salvation, Isaiah 61. Your robe of righteousness you get after the judgment seat of Christ. It isn't your salvation. Bible says in Revelation 19, verse 17, that the bride, you and me, has made herself ready. What does that mean? You've been to the judgment seat of Christ. you got all these spot wrinkles out of everything. And now you're ready to go to the marriage. Now the Bible says she's arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. And verse 8 says, to her that was granted uh, that she should be arrayed in fine linen. This is not salvation. This is long after the day you were saved. Now, that's the first definitive passage, and that sets a base for us. Now, we're going to go to the second one, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And 2 Corinthians chapter 5, before we read down through this, I want to draw your attention to verse 10 so we can get the context here. Verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So now there's no question of what the context is here. Now let me read it for you. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heaven. That's your soul. You have inside your physical body a spiritual body. And if you are unsaved, when your physical body dies, that spiritual body, which is eternal, has to go to the lake of fire. First it goes to hell, then Revelation chapter 20, it's your last judgment, it's dumped into the lake of fire. I could take time this morning to tell you why God has to have a lake of fire, why somebody's got to burn for all eternity, but we don't have time for that this morning. So suffice it to say, if you're lost, turn or burn. That's where it's going. Now, if you're saved... You have an eternal body inside you, which is your soul. When your body dies, your spiritual soul goes to be with the Lord. And it's that soul that he says here, for in this, verse 2, we groan earnest, uh, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon our house, which is from heaven. If so, that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, not for that which would be unclothed, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. Now he that hath wrought uh, us for this selfsame thing is God, who also have given us the earnest of the Spirit. Therefore we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. But we walk by faith and not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing, rather, to be absent from the body and be present with the Lord." Wherefore, we labor that whether present or absent, here it comes, we may be accepted of him. Now, that's a great question for all of us this morning. If the Lord would come right now, I mean this very second, and we'd be raptured out, and you'd stand before the judgment seat of Christ, would you be accepted based on what you've done for him? I'm not talking about your salvation. <coughs> if you're saved this morning, you're in Christ, and he's in you. There's no acceptance to it. 
What I'm talking about, after he saved you, he had a purpose for our lives. He had something that he wanted us to accomplish and do. And in that, at the judgment seat of Christ, is our acceptance as stewards. Stewards for God. For we must all appear, verse 10, before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive things done in his body, according that he has done, whether it be good or bad. I, I've always thought that was a great verse. And I don't mean to knock anybody, and I'm not trying to, I don't, don't have anybody in names, I just know it from life. But, you know, it says, you know, you've got guys who are millionaires, rich guys, and all their life they keep their money, they do what they want to do, and they know when they die they're not going to get any get to use it or anything. So they keep all their money all their life, buy what they want, do what they want to do. And when they die, they leave it all to some charitable organization or some church. And they actually think that now that's going to cut them some slack. God knows where your mind is. He knows what your motive is. And that verse tells you right there that at the judgment seat of Christ, you only get credit for the things you do in this body. Not after you're dead and gone, can't use it anymore, and you got everything you wanted out of it, you don't want to give it to somebody else. I'm going to tell you something. God's got a wrench that'll fit any nut in this world. (laughs) Knowing therefore, look at verse 11. Here it comes. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord. That judgment seat of Christ was called for you and for me, a terror of the Lord. God told me one time, he said, I ain't going to worry about saving God. I'll take my chances at the judgment seat of Christ, and then I'll be okay because they get to go to heaven to be with the Lord. It says, verse 11, it's the terror of the Lord. Verse 11, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but are made manifest unto God, and I also made manifest in your conscience. Now, don't get mad at me because I'm preaching to you today. If you don't like it, you know what I'm trying to do? I'm trying to persuade you that there's a day coming that you're going to stand. Let me tell you something. To the gentleman seat of Christ, I will be some of your best friends. Because your life was headed down the road that you would have been in a mess in your life. Amen. And God, some of you, some goofball. Thank the Lord. Yeah, th- shut up. You ain't allowed to talk. I'm going to hire a private investigator to follow you around, son. For we commend not ourselves again to you, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf that you may somewhat to answer them which glory in appearance and not in heart. You know what he's saying? He said, there's a lot of God's people that like to glory about God in appearance, but not really in their heart. Now, this is the second definitive chapter here. And I want you to know verse 1 is talking about your spiritual glorified body that you get after the rapture of the church. And verse 2, 3, and 4, I want you to note, somebody's worried about in that day being naked in verse 3. In verse 2, somebody's earnestly desiring to be clothed that they don't be found naked. And in verse 4, it says somebody's afraid that they'll be unclothed. Verse 9 says that our labor, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, our work is what, is what gets accepted of him. And it says that we're all going to appear in verse 10. Now, you want to mark that verse in your Bible. That's another word, man, the word appear. We'll see that in a moment. And then verse 11 says it's the terror of the Lord. 
And Revelation chapter 14, verse 10 says, We shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And verse 8 says, And every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Let me tell you something. When God saved you, He died for you. He had a plan for you. He had something He wants you to accomplish for Him. And many times we do our own thing. We don't get the wisdom of God. We're the fool, Proverbs. We go do our own thing. And, and, we, and you know what? We, we, we think that we don't have to give an account to God. We think that we can do whatever we want to do. I want to tell you something. In your life, you're go, it's not a matter of when you will or, or if you will. It's only a matter of when you will. We all will bow our knee and our tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You either do it now and accept the blessings of God or you'll do it in that day. As you stand naked. I'm telling you. But I, I know why guys don't like to hear stuff like this. Same reason they don't go to the doctor. We don't want to face the reality that we're going in life is going to be a disaster. Whether it's in a relationship, whether it's in a job, whether it's in whatever, a marriage, or whether it's in our own relationship with God. We want to pretend we're Okay. God's day of reckoning for the church. God's day of reckoning for the child of God who paid the price, who counted the cost, who no matter what, bore the shame and the reproach of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you don't bear the shame and the reproach now, you'll bear it over there. But you will bear it. And you're going to get down on your knees by your bed or you'll get down on your car driving someplace or you'll get struck by the Holy Spirit of God and you'll get on your knee and you'll confess that he's the Lord of your life and make him Lord in your life or in that day, that stiff neck with all the things you've got and your mind and your life or you're going to do it your way. In that day before him, you'll bow that knee and you'll bend that stiff neck and you'll say, Jesus Christ is Lord. The glory of God the Father. How to do it now. And in the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verses 14 through 22, we have, and I told you already, there's seven periods of church history. And we have in Revelation, chapter 3, the last one, the one that you and I are part of. The Laodicean church, around 1900, uh, the present day, up to the rapture. And here it is, here's the problem. Verse 17, 18, and 19. Because thou sayest, this church, I am rich and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. That's the megachurch today. They got everything that they need. They don't need anything from God. They got everything they could ever want. They're rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And he says, I counsel thee, verse 18, to buy of me gold tried in the fire. There it is. That gold's going to show up at the, at the judgment seat of Christ. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed. Here it comes. And that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. There's that word. Back to the judgment seat. This church period, you and me has lost its way and thinks that it has everything, but in reality, the Bible says it's wretched, it's miserable, it's poor, it's blind, and it's naked. Judgment seat of Christ. There it is. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, this is called the church of the closed door. The door is closed, and if you read the verse, God's knocking on the door, Christ is knocking on the door trying to get back in. He's locked out of his own church. 
Now, in the few minutes I got left here, I feel like I need to do this because we've laid it out very clearly to you and you can see the difference now. But uh, based on the verse today and what we have seen today, I think it's my duty to warn you and to give you the seven areas of our lives that will get you naked at the judgment seat of Christ. I want to be honest with you this morning. I, 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 I preach messages that you may not like because I don't care what you like. I just care about the truth. Doesn't matter to me whether you like it or you don't like it. I got to listen to it too. You only have to hear it once. I worked on it all week. I'm more sick of it than you are. But I want to give you seven areas of our lives that for sure will get you and me as naked as a jaybird of the judgment seat of Christ. Now the first one, and this happens to us all at some point or the other, the first one is the fact that we come to the point as a child of God where we lose our emphasis. We don't we don't, we're not a wise master builder. In fact, I'm not sure what we're building. The great example of this is Solomon. You know, Solomon was, was chose, uh, chosen to build the temple of God. David wasn't allowed because David's a picture of Christ at the second coming, and Solomon's a picture of Christ in the millennium. So David couldn't do it because he's the warrior, and Solomon got to do it because in the time that he reigned for 40 years, it's the greatest picture of the millennium anywhere in the Bible. So he was chosen to do it. But when you look at that, the Bible says in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 38, that when he built God's temple, it took him seven years to build it. Now, you just think in a spiritual application, that'd be your body. I'll tell you something. I'll just be honest with you. You come into this church, hook up with me, get into where I put you, give me your life and your undivided attention for seven years, I'll build you into a temple. But after that seven years, brother, that, that you'll, you'll be something. It may not even take that long for some of you. But others, you need an extension on your contract. It's going to be a little longer. But anyway, when he built the temple of God, that's a great model. It shows that in the physical temple, it took seven years. That means that if you and I do what we're supposed to do, and we get in that book, and we clear out the spot, and we give God everything he wants, in seven years, you can be there. Oh, yeah. Here's the problem. 1 Kings chapter 7, verse 1. Solomon took seven years to build God's house, but he took 13 to build his own. You see, he's a perfect example of you and me who spend more time building the things of our own world than we do the things of God. And my question simply is, what are you building in your life today for God? Don't tell me about your house. Don't tell me about your remodeling project. Don't tell me about all the things you do, all the places you go, and all that. I'm not talking about that. In your life, what are you building for God that is more than you're building for yourself? You say, what's wrong with me? You've lost your emphasis. I'll tell you the second thing. <laughs> Are the bitter things still sweet, children? <laughs> oh, I love it. I beat myself up with this one. Wrong doctrine or no doctrine. First Timothy chapter, or 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says, the number one thing the Bible's profitable for is for doctrine. That's what it teaches then for proof, correction, for instruction in righteousness. The Bible will only change you into what God wants you to be or transform you into what God wants you to be with these four things in your life. You've got to learn what's right. You've got to learn what's wrong. You've got to learn how to fix it, and you've got to learn how to keep it fixed. Third thing, wrong attitude. 
Our attitude of heart toward God, our attitude of heart toward the Word of God, our attitude of heart toward the ministry of God, our attitude of heart toward each other. I'll tell you a story here. You girls that play softball, we got four girls teams? Okay. You know your ump who umpires your teams. What's his name? Bill. Bill. He came to me last night after the game. I was up there getting ready to leave. And he said, uh, now Bill's unsaved. And he says, I don't want you to know you've got the greatest bunch of people I've ever met in my life. He's, he's, he's umped for you girls for 15 years. Do you know that? Time flies. 15 years. And he's unsaved. You ever notice? You ever notice when you guys pull there, he'll call you together to pray? Now, he's unsaved. He'll call you together to pray. You'll start praying. He'll take his hat off. He'll cross his hands and close his head. I mean, you have made an impact in his world. He says, the one word that, that sums up your people is the word love. So they say they all love each other. And I, said, I laughed. I said to him, I said, you know, I said, I bet this is a real refreshing time to come do this. And all the city leaves you do it. He said, oh, you have no idea. We get cussed at. We get thrown things at. People threaten our lives and all this stuff. He says, it is so good to come here. This is an unsaved man. He says, it's so good to come here and see the love that's in your church with these people. You did that. You did that. Because you love each other genuinely. It isn't fake. Now, I got something else to tell you. This Saturday is his birthday. I want each one of you teams to get him a card and a little birthday present and take it up to him when you play to him and say, Bill, happy birthday. Thank you for being here. I'll tell you what. You, here's an unsaved man who I guarantee you, when she goes home, he doesn't forget the ball game and the people that were the witness to him. And nobody's ever given him a track. Nobody's ever said a word to him that I don't think they ever have. But you know what? It's like I've said many times. Every Christian, every Christian, every Christian is out of witness. And sometimes you should even use words. It's your life. It's what he sees in you. Loving each other. Caring about each other. It's what he sees. Their attitude. And 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13 says that at the judgment seat of Christ, he's going to sort it out. He's going to sort out the attitude, the motive by which we do what we do. It's not going to be what did you do. We, we do all these things and think of the judgment seat of Christ. Boy, I'm going to come out clean because look at all the things that I did. It's not about one thing that you did. It's about why you did what you did. You know, back in Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2, great lesson. When the devil attacked Job to God, he went after Job's motive for loving God. Some of God's people get naked to the judgment seat of Christ because they have the wrong, they have the wrong, wrong attitude. I'll tell you the fourth thing. They do it because they have the wrong goals. I won't, I won't waste any time here. Uh, the goal for all of us should simply be to stand unashamed at the judgment seat of Christ. The goal for each one of us should be get a full reward in that day. After what he's done for us, Amen. after the price that was paid, after agony he went through, and you're afraid if you serve God, you'll break a fingernail? Really? The riches of this life 
are not to be compared with the true riches that the Word of God has for us. And many times in our life, we got the wrong goal. We want all the things for ourselves. Fifth thing, wrong perspective. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, Now if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. All things become new. When you got saved in the Bible, we have this as our discipleship too. <clears throat> There's seven things that changed about you that you got new the day you got saved. Save things at the <clears throat> moment, <clears throat> the moment before you were saved, you were dead in trespasses of sin. <clears throat> the moment you got saved, you now become a new creature in Christ Jesus. Old things are passed away, and God adds seven new things to your life. And you know what the tragedy is? Some of God's people sitting here this morning saved on your way to heaven, going to face that judgment seat of Christ, and they don't even know what they are. Sixth thing. Wrong Bible. Where Laodicea <clears throat> is the worst church and the last church and the one that we're part of, when you come through a great study of the periods of church history, the seven of them, <clears throat> you'll find that the one before that, that started around 1600 and actually goes up to about 1900, about 350 years all total, is the Philadelphian church. Philadelphia means brotherly love. And where the church of Laodicea is called the closed door, the church of uh, Philadelphia is called the open door. That church, you're told in Revelation chapter 3, verse 7, God says, I set before you an open door, no man can shut it. It's a lot like this church here. We get opportunity after opportunity with people. We get opportunity after opportunity in ministry. And you know why? It's not because of anything I do. It's because of the book that we have and that we love, and that book is the book of the open door. God will give you open door. Open doors are opportunities in the Bible. And then he says in chapter 3, verse 7, that that church had the key of David. You know what the key of David is? The key of David is in Psalms 119. Find out what David's key was that God says he's a man after my own heart. In Revelation chapter 2, verses uh, 8, 9, and 10, he says this about this church. I know, <clears throat> I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, <clears throat> and no man can shut it. <clears throat> For thou hast a little strength, and thou hast kept my word, and thou hast not denied my name. You see that thing? They kept his word. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation. I could take the rest of the morning and talk to you about the church age, what the hour of temptation was for us. Don't have time. I will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them which dwell on the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold fast what they have that no man take thy crown. You see, you don't have to worry about somebody taking your garment because your garment has nothing to do with your salvation. What you get at the judgment seat of Christ is crowns. And you better be careful that some man doesn't take your book and then take your crowns. About number seven, wrong relationships. Wrong people in your life. The people you hang out with. If the Bible is clear about anything at all, it's clear about the relationships we build and the people uh, we, we have contact with. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33, that evil, com evil communication corrupt good manners. He says in Psalm chapter 1, Blessed is the man that walketh not on the counsel of God, nor standeth the way of sinners, but sit in the seat of the sword bowl. The moment you start walking with God and start walking one crowd, pretty soon you're standing with him, you're not walking anymore, and then pretty soon you're sitting with him and you're scorning everything about God that you once loved. Don't tell me. Fifty-some years, almost 50 years in the ministry, I've seen it over and over and over again. I'm telling you. 
And, and don't get mad at me. I'm trying to persuade you this morning. There's a day coming where you're going to stand. And I don't care if you never heard it before. Get out of that church and get to a place that will teach you the Bible. And I'm telling you, there's a day coming when you're going to stand before God. And if a preacher, your pastor, has denied you that and not told you that, he has defrauded you. How dare he send you to that day that's a terror in the Lord and not preparing you for it. Now, I don't want you to be naked there, and I don't want you to lose rewards. And honestly, I will do everything I can in my power. But I want you to know this. If you get there and you lose everything you got, it won't be because I didn't tell you the truth. It's because you didn't want to go to the doctor to find out what's wrong. First Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 through 8 says, Being unequally yoked together with unbelievers, marriage, or any, unrela- any relationship... And I know we use that for marriage, but it's any relationship. And verses 14 through 17 tells us why. They don't have the same value system. There's a great principle taught all through the Word of God. And it's an example of Lot and, and Abraham. Lot, uh, Lot, Abraham wasn't perfect, but Abraham loved God and he believed what God said. <coughs> And God took Abraham, and because of his family and what he knew he would do, he built from him God's nation, the nation of Israel. Lot, on the other hand, where Abraham believed God and went the way he went, Lot went down to the world of Sodom. And you know, he's a picture of a saved man because the Bible calls him in the New Testament righteous Lot. Are you kidding me? He's down in Sodom and Gomorrah, which is the equivalent of the homosexual environment and community today. I know, I know, I know. Uh, Nobody today wants to believe that homosexuality is wrong. I get it, I get it, I understand, I know. And I've heard them, I've heard them get on there and on TV and on the radio and read their books where they say, well, you know, everybody, all those Bible thumpers, that would be me, all those people up there, they want to talk about God destroying Sodom and Gomorrah because of the fact that it was for homosexuals. It wasn't that. It was because in Sodom and Gomorrah they had a lack of hospitality. Yeah, and I guess when they're over there, those guys are beating on the door, wanting to get Lot out. And Lot says, uh, hey, guys, you can't do this. He says, bring them out because we want to know them. Oh, I get it. Hi, my name is Bob and you're Drake. Good to know you. Welcome to Sodom. That's not the knowing they wanted. Uh, You know what? You know what Lot's value system is? Lot says, you can't do that to these guys. I'll tell you what. I've got some daughters here that never knew men. You take them instead. What a value system. Wow. There's a lot of God's people just like that. And I'll tell you what. You know, I, I said it before. I took my glasses. You take my glasses one more time, you're in trouble. <laughs> I told her before. You know what? We all have problems in our world. We all have problems in our life. Nobody's free from them. We all struggle with things, every one of us. But I want to tell you something right now. I want to tell you a dying truth. Changing geographical locations don't solve your problems. The problem wasn't, I mean, I know Abraham wanted him out. God got him out. and God got Lot out of Sodom. But the problem wasn't getting Lot out of Sodom. The problem was getting Sodom out of Lot. And our problem has to change from what's inside us. You and me and who we hang out with. Hey, I've seen it all my life. I've seen people get into relationships 
And they want a relationship so bad, they totally justify it in their mind that this woman and this guy is okay. They're going to be fine. It's great. They violate every principle in the Word of God. They never see what's actually happened. They're so caught up in what they want that they lose the reality of what the Bible says they're really in. I'm telling you. And 99% of them never see what's coming. That's why they have one bad marriage, two bad marriage, three bad marriages, four bad marriage. We had a lady in this church one time years and years ago. She's married ten times when she left here. Ten times. She may be 11, 12, or 13, or 14, or 15 by now. I think she probably went double digits. It's probably close to 20. But in every case, she never would follow what the Word of God said. Now, there'll be no greater doctrine to the body of Christ than the doctrine of the judgment seat of Christ. Salvation may be free, but it comes with a price. You and I just didn't have to pay it. At a price that you and I could never pay if we had to pay it. Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, that we are bought with a price. And that makes you and me a debtor. Most of God's people never understand that we have a debt to owe to Christ because of the price that he paid for us. It blows my mind. You understand about being a debt in your credit cards, master charge and and visa. You understand that debt, and you got to pay that every month. You understand you got a debt to the bank for your car, for your house. You got to take your dog to the vet, and they charge you for everything today. Now they want to do senior screenings on your pet. For $300, they'll give you a report and say, your vet, your dog's getting old. <laughs> We're in debt to everything and everybody. But as God's people, we've forgotten. We've ruled off the debt that we owe to him. Amen. The debt that you and I could never pay if we had to pay it. Amen. And that's why it's a lifelong thing. Uh, you, know, in, you, know, it, you know, there'll come a time when your house will be paid off. There'll come a time when your car's paid off. There'll come a time when your vet bill's paid off after the dog died and they cremated him. Uh, there'll, there'll come a time in your life when hopefully you'll get your MasterCard paid off. And you can watch, say, man, I'm glad I'm out from under that. But I'm going to tell you something. There'll never be a time you'll get the debt paid off that he paid for you. Amen. Never. It's a lifelong debt. It's something that I have to pay every day. There'll never be a time when I can go home at night and say, I don't owe him anything today. It's just the opposite. I go home every night and I understand how much more I owe him today than I did yesterday. The debt. The debt. The debt. When we do our discipleship lessons, we have 10 lessons. And you'll notice those of you who've been discipled, the last lesson is on the perspective of the Christian life. And you know what the last lesson is? The last lesson we leave you with is a lesson on the judgment seat of Christ. Because that's a day it's coming in your world. It's just that simple. And for the unsaved man, his judgment will be held accountable at the great white throne judgment. And for you and for me, our accountability for all that God gave us and the debt that we owe to him will be at the judgment seat of Christ. You know, we talk about our liberty in Christ, and that's one of the most misused things anywhere in Christianity today. We think that our liberty give us the license to do whatever we want to do. It's one of the most misunderstood and misapplied and misused concepts in all the world today. You know, I heard a sailor one time. In fact, he was a Navy SEAL, Christian, great guy. He gave a devotion one time, and his devotion was on the judgment seat of Christ. 
And he used an example that I've never forgotten, and only a Navy guy could use it. And he said, you know, in the Navy, he says, when you're on a ship for six months, three months deployment, and you finally come into a port, they, uh, they give us what we call liberty. And liberty, we get off the ship, and we don't have to report back for a week, maybe two weeks or four or five days, whatever. And he says, you're pretty much on your own. And he says, you know, you take a bunch of guys that have been cooped up on a ship for three months or six months, things get crazy. And there's always bar fights, there's always things, there's always shore patrols always involved, there's always, there's always everything that goes on. <clears throat> and he said, you know what? There isn't a one of us. No matter what we do on our liberty, we all understand that when we get back to ship, we will give an account for what we did when we were on liberty. And he made, the, he made the connection just like the judgment seat of Christ. We have liberty right now, but don't you kid yourself. There's a day coming when old Mount Zion, the ship of Mount Zion, comes into port that will give an account for our liberty. The Bible says it's the terror of the Lord. So when the Bible talks about in Proverbs chapter 27, and it talks about taking a, a surety for a stranger and losing some things, I know for the nation of Israel, that's their garments of salvation for you and for me, swining up naked at the judgment seat of Christ. God giving you a glorified body, but you make the clothes that you wear by the things that you do, Proverbs chapter 31. And I'll tell you what, at the judgment seat of Christ, I know you don't bother you now. Some of you already turned me off about an hour ago, and I haven't been preaching that long. And I know you don't want to hear it, but I'm telling you this. The judgment seat of Christ, there'll be people that in that day when you stand there and you look at him standing up there and for the first time in your life, you realize the price that he paid for you. You see, you got too many things now to block it out. You got your car, you got your house, you got your boat, you got your this, you got your that. You got all the money, you got all this stuff, you got your garden, you got this. And now you can put all those things in. In that day, that's all gone. And you stand there and there he'll be. And you'll see the eyes that he loved you with. You'll understand now, like we talked about Thursday night, Song of Solomon chapter 2. You'll understand. You'll see him. You'll understand all that he's done for you. You'll, in a moment, in a fraction of a second, you'll look back in a flash of your life and you'll see every turn of event that he was there guiding you, taking care of you. You'll see his agony and understand it on the cross. And for the first time in your life, like a hungry giant coming home for lunch, you're going to realize everything that he did for you. And right behind that, you're going to realize that you did nothing for him. It's all about you. It's all about what you want. And I guarantee you, folks, I'm trying to persuade you, you better listen. You better just shut it out for a second, and I'll be through, and then you can go on to your joys of life. But I'm telling you, there will be people in that day that will be begging to go back to planet Earth for just five minutes to serve God because they never did in their life. And nobody's going back. It's what you did in this body or you didn't do in this body. The judgment seat of Christ for you and for me, losing the garments for the nation of Israel, you and I being naked before the great judgment seat. At the great white throne judgment, the unsaved man gives an account. At the judgment seat of Christ, you and I will give our account. Every head bowed and every eye closed.